Welcome to Obesity, a Disease, the official Obesity Medicine Association podcast exploring the many facets of the disease of obesity. Obesity, a Disease podcast is brought to you by the Obesity Medicine Association, the clinical leader in obesity medicine. Imagine a set of twins. Initially, they both weigh 150 pounds. Now imagine over the course of 10 years, one of those twins gains 100 pounds, maxing out at 250 pounds, while the other stays the same weight. That twin then undergoes intensive lifestyle changes and loses the 100 pounds that they had gained, getting back to the same weight as their sibling. Would they still be the same? Would they have the same body composition? Would they have the same level of insulin resistance, of leptin resistance? Would the regulators of appetite be the same? Would they have the same resting metabolic rate? Would their risk for future weight gain be the same? Would they have the same risk for diabetes or other diseases? The Smithrin study published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2011 looked at individuals that lost 14% of their body weight in 10 weeks and followed appetite regulators before weight loss, after weight loss, and a year later. One year after weight loss, hunger signals remained higher, satiety signals remained lower, even after a year after weight loss. The perceived hunger and desire to eat were higher at 62 weeks than they were at the 10 weeks initial weight loss phase. I suspect that the sibling that gained and lost weight would be subject to metabolic adaptation with lower metabolic rate, greater hunger, less satiety, and more likely to gain weight. This emphasizes the importance of early intervention in treating obesity. Hi, I'm Dr. Nick Pennings, Chair of Family Medicine at the Campbell University School of Osteopathic Medicine, and with me today is Michelle Look, MD. Michelle, would you like to introduce yourself and tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Thank you, Nick. Um, I'm Michelle Luck, and I'm a family physician, sports medicine, and obesity medicine in private practice at San Diego Sports Medicine Weight and Wellness. And I've been uh, in practice in primary care for 24 years, and now I've recently uh, transitioned to doing full-time obesity medicine. Well, that's great, and, and a great field to be in, and it's something that I've really enjoyed in, in my years of practice. I did primary care for 22 years uh, and then transitioned into obesity medicine. Uh-huh. So weight has been divided into categories, underweight, normal weight, overweight, and three obesity classes. I, I find the term rather of overweight rather awkward. It's hard to use when applying people first language as it's easier to use the, an adjective than as a noun. Are there other concerns with using the term overweight? I completely agree with you. Overweight really is more descriptive and what we're talking about is um, describing someone's elevated risk. And so we like to use the term pre-obesity because I think it, it medicalizes the term. You know, we want people to think about their weight as well as the disease of obesity as something that belongs in the medical home. And so I think by medicalizing the term, people take it more seriously. Right, and recognize it as a risk. Uh, as we look at uh, obesity rates, they've been steadily climbing, but what has happened with pre-obesity? Unfortunately, uh, well, we see that there's the population of pre-obesity is quite large. It's actually 32% of the American population now at with the BMI of 25 to 30. Um, 
we actually predict that that number is going to go down. So by 2030, we predict it to be at 30%. Unfortunately, that's not because the population is increasing, but that more patients with pre-obesity are transitioning to obesity. So we see that the, the weight is continuing to increase. And that's more than we saw 30 years ago. Uh, weights in America are trending upwards. And especially of concern, it's in the younger population. And so overall, we've seen sort of a, a, a level uh, rate of pre-obesity, but it's only because we have people from normal weight going into pre-obesity and people from pre-obesity going into obesity. Absolutely. Absolutely right. It's unfortunate that the more people are transitioning. And so that's why I think it's important for us to start intervening earlier. And so taking and paying attention to patients in this category of BMI 25 to 30 with pre-obesity. And so those BMI categories, though, are not specific to gender or race. They, they don't uh, take gender into consideration very often or race. So how should clinicians be looking at patients in the pre-obesity category based on gender and race? You know, you're right. There's a lot of faults to BMI. You know, we're in this current category of, of season of BMI bashing, I would say, because we're, we're trying to pay more attention. There's a lot of benefits to BMI, right? It's something that's easy to um, obtain. It's something that's reproducible. Um, you know, all our EMRs just calculate our BMI for us now. Um, but there's problems and limitations with BMI. It doesn't take into consideration ethnicity, and so it will often underestimate risk in some ethnicities in particular Asian populations, where we see the same elevated risk in terms of metabolic disease at a lower BMI. So we do studies where we're looking at metabolic parameters like fasting, blood sugar, hypertension, um, even lipids. We see the same elevated risk at a lower BMI, like 25 instead of 30. Um, and then in some ethnicities, we may be overestimating risk because the BMI is just a measurement of height and weight. And so they may have higher muscle mass or a denser bone tissue um, leading to a higher weight, but still their level of body fat may still be low. And so when so BMI really is a, a starting point for looking Absolutely. at and then uh, what do you recommend then those clinicians look at? I think BMI should be a screening tool so if we especially in this discussion we're talking about that BMI of 25 to 30 and while we're saying be uh, pre-obesity many patients may have already some of the comorbidities from elevated adipose tissue and so we want to recommend checking other parameters, right? right? It's a, a screen to say, hey, I need to get more information. I need to assess more. So some ways that you can do that um, by other metrics would be checking waist circumference. Waist circumference is something that primary care providers can do in their office and that is relatively easy. It is also sometimes not as reproducible, but it's easy and non-invasive to do. And the other thing that is, would be great would be body composition. We're seeing a real change in the ability to um, assess body composition more readily. It used to be something that involved water weighing displacement or air displacement or skin calipers and no longer. Now we have bioelectrical impedance analysis or just smart scales, we say, um, that even patients can purchase for their home. They give an assessment of body fat and we really care about not just total body fat, but in particular, we see a higher uh, relationship between increased 
metabolic risk and visceral fat. So the ability to assess visceral fat is something that's going to provide a lot more information. Right. So that waist circumference gives you an indirect measurement of, of visceral fat. Body composition uh, gives you a sense of visceral fat as well. Some, particularly 4.1s, give you a better sense of that as well. Um, and then looking at the consequences of visceral fat, right? So all the metabolic disease that goes along with that, glucose and lipids, as you mentioned. Absolutely. It's just a starting point for us to look at, you know, assessing the severity or the complications from their excess weight and their excess adipose tissue. So that's a great time to look at how their weight is impacting their life. One, by asking the patient. Asking the patient, you know, how do you think your weight is affecting your life? Quality of life, function of life, right? Some from just the fat mass alone can affect their mobility, um, their mental health, how their weights, and then of course our assessment of metabolic disease by checking some screening labs with them. Right, because we'll see patients, there's, there's no one particular BMI that is a threshold for diabetes. We might see diabetes in somebody with a BMI below 30 or even below 25 sometimes, uh, and whereas we can see other patients that have a BMI above 30 and not have diabetes, so those metabolic parameters become an important factor. Absolutely. You know, I mean, BMI is a decent estimate of body fat in population studies, but it doesn't look at the individual. Again, it's just a screen for us. So, so you know, body fat would be a better measurement. It correlates more with metabolic disease um, as well as cardiovascular disease. So uh, trying to, um, the ability for us to check this more easily, I think, will change the future. So what role does age play in this assessment? Because again, the BMI scales are the same for every age. Uh, when, how should we be factoring age into that decision making? How should we be treating you know, seniors compared to young individuals versus midlife? When we look at some uh, really uh, pivotal uh, studies that look at the relationship between BMI and mortality, we see that as you, uh, it's a J point curve. So as you increase BMI, really starting at a BMI below 25, we see an increased risk in all cause mortality. And that relationship is even stronger the younger you are. So I kind of think about it like tobacco exposure. The longer that you live with elevated BMI, the higher the risk. Same with smoking. The longer that you smoke, the higher the risk. And so um, really addressing patients who are starting to show risk factors as well as some of this uh, comorbidities from elevated BMI or even uh, early weight gain in that early years, especially in early mid-adulthood, is a time to act because we know that those patients who have elevated BMI at a younger age have increased risk of all-cause mortality and morbidity. And that speaks to the importance of recognizing pre-obesity and recognizing it particularly in younger individuals so that we can intervene earlier because the longer that they have that weight, as you're saying, the greater the risk. Right. So as we go from below age 50, we see that hazard ratio um, with elevated BMI being greater than somebody who is in a BMI of 25 over the age of 80, where we still see a J-shaped curve, but it's the, the curve is less steep. So I might not be as aggressive um, in an older patient with a BMI of 25, but I think bringing up the subject in a patient who is younger, especially under age 45, is, is really key. 
Another factor and the importance of treating pre-obesity is that as weight goes up, as your BMA gets higher and higher in obesity range, it is as a, the situation that I described in the introduction, it gets more difficult to lose weight, it gets more difficult to maintain that weight loss. So it, by treating pre-obesity, are we going to make it easier to try to maintain a healthier weight? Well, I wish I really had the data to tell you that um, that it's easier when it's earlier, but that's what we would hope, um, right? Because as you described so eloquently, um, fighting metabolic adaptation is very hard to do, especially without medication or surgery. And so intervening earlier with lifestyle interventions and sustainable change, um, especially this early uh, BMIs, might be more successful at preventing that transition from pre-obesity to obesity. Well, one of the challenges around that is we don't have a lot of tools in the toolbox for uh, treating pre-obesity, oh, is that right? unfortunately not. You know, if we, we really rely on lifestyle interventions, maybe even adding in prescriptive nutritional therapy, um, but most of our FDA-approved anti-obesity medications are really for BMI of 30 or at least BMI of 27 with already a comorbidity from obesity. So it limits our usage of some of the big tools in our toolbox. But there are some tools that are out there. Can you describe some of the things that are approved or allowed to be used for lower BMIs? Yes, we have some old school medicines such as Orlistat that was approved in 1998. And at the low dose, over the counter dose of 60 milligrams, it's approved for all BMIs. Um, and so we can use that in a BMI of 25. We also have some, they're actually considered devices, um, but they are capsules of methylcellulose and citric acid Acid that you swallow and it fills up space in your stomach and that also has resulted in decreased weight because it makes people feel more full so they eat less calories and it um, um, showed to decrease weight as well so we have some devices in some over-the-counter medications that can be used. We have some off-label uses of other well-known drugs, such as metformin, um, that was used in one of our longest lifestyle intervention trials called the Look Ahead Trial. Sorry, the Diabetes Prevention Program, the DPP trial. And they had a metformin arm, um, including a population between 25 and 30 BMI, and they showed significant weight loss, on average about 4.7% total body weight loss. That's great. Now, Orlistat can be rather difficult to uh, take uh, with some significant side effects. Any recommendations if somebody's using Orlistat to minimize the it's, side effects? It's so key that we counsel our patients with starting Orlistat because it is a lipase inhibitor. And so if patients eat too much fat, they will have more side effects. So I, it's a time when I will have patients try to count their macronutrients um, and really look at decreasing fat intake. And that seems to help. Adding a fiber supplement also seems to help with some of the side effects and the main side effects by the way are um, oily discharge and so remember the body's not absorbing that fat so if you eat too much fat then it's going to come right out and that's where the issues um, come so in some ways it's so much of a, a behavioral modification supplement and it can be very successful in the right hands yeah, kind of an aversion therapy. Right? Exactly, exactly. And the hydrocellulose, any tips for using that? 
The main side effect that we saw, think about it as eating a whole container of cucumbers, right? So it is um, creating a bigger um, fibrous mass in your stomach to decrease space in the stomach to make you feel full. Unlike fiber, however, it's an actual viscous supplement and not just um, a slur. And so it, it works better than just eating cucumbers at decreasing, um, uh, at, sorry, at increasing fullness. Uh, so I think people need to get used to that. What I found in my patients, many patients tolerate it, but it took a while. Just like when we start people on fiber supplements, sometimes I don't even start with the the, the t um, three capsules twice a day. I start less with once a day and then build up from there. And that seems to help with some of the bloating. And initially you may even see your weight increase a little bit because you're holding on to more water in the more system. More water, exactly. Right, so patients need to be wary of that. You're not going to see immediate weight loss with these type with that type of an agent. Exactly, but that's just water and so with time I think that settles out. Any particular patients that do better with metformin in that, in that weight category? Well, you know, we use metformin for a lot of different things. In particular, there's some pretty good data on preventing type 2 diabetes. So uh, in my patients with who are already starting to show signs of elevated fasting um, blood sugar, um, metformin is one that I start out early. I also have many patients who have um, chronic constipation. And I actually uh, find metformin because one of the side effects can be loose stools. Adding metformin seems to really help them, even if it's from irritable bowel constipation. So I, I often use metformin. We have a lot of data of using metformin to offset some of the weight gain we see with some of our mental health medications as well. So it's a medication that I tell patients we've had a long time and it's very safe. I always start off with the extended release version if I can. Um, it is available on generic and I'll start with one a day and then I'll try to increase to the maximum tolerated dose which would be up to 2,000 milligrams. That's great. Um, and since we don't have a lot of interventional tools for treatment of pre-obesity, we also want to be cognizant of medications that cause weight gain and, and making sure our patients that are in that category are not on uh, medications that might promote weight gain. This is a population where I spend a lot of time kind of digging into patients' medications and looking for those weight gaining meds and choosing and having that you know shared decision making with them. Perhaps this is a time they would be willing to try other self-help or self-management tools to try to get them off of some of these weight gaining meds or looking for alternatives that um, may provide less weight gain with them. So I think that's an important first step in this uh, population. Um, with um, elevated BMI. Well, some, some great bits of advice. So one last question. When managing patients with obesity, what is your favorite piece of advice? Oh, there's so many. <laughs> there's so many. But I think the main thing I try to leave my patients with is that we're looking for sustainable change and sustainable behavior. Um, and so whenever I talk about making a lifestyle change, I'm always looking for insight from them. You know, is this something that you think that you can do? Is this something that you think that you can do long term. Many of my patients will lose weight and still have these goals of more weight loss and I talk to them about sustainable weight and that may be the best weight for them is not necessarily the ideal weight and so if we're struggling to shoot for an extra you know 10 pounds perhaps we should think about 
more of a sustainable way where they're not having to struggle so much and make their life miserable. So we have to respect their body and, and look for things that they think that they could do long term. And we know from the data that things that they can do long term is what really makes for better success. I know that is a challenging issue that a lot of patients will uh, set a weight loss goal and it may not be realistic. Uh, I particularly um, on my body composition analyzer it gives an ideal body weight which yes. drives me crazy because it's usually a weight that's probably extremely unhealthy for that individual. Uh, the other thing is interesting in patients when they pick a weight loss goal it typically ends in zero which is really such a random kind of <laughs> thing. Does, of <laughs> does our body really need to be at some weight that ends in zero? Right. Uh, and I think that speaks to how it's an arbitrary number and we really just should be listening to our bodies and seeing you know, where does our body plateau? And that seems to be where it should be. That's right. And we're always moving their goal to be more of a smart goal, right? So, you know, I'm asking, hey, when I, when you first met me, I asked you what your, your, you know, Dr. Horn covers this single most important outcome, right? It was being more mobile. It was having less pain. It was being off some of these medications or playing with my grandkids. And so it, when I hit that sustainable weight, I'm looking, have we met those goals? Right. And not just a number on the scale because could we try and get those another 10 pounds we could absolutely and if that's what you want to do well I'm, I'm all in but are we fighting ourselves and making you miserable so that sustainability of the lifestyle change and finding the, a weight that your body is going to accept right and calling our patients attention to um, those health improvements and those quality of life indicators that have changed are really I think in a, in a very important part so that patients kind of get off of that weight-centric uh, approach and, and really look at how their life has improved. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Dr. Michelle Look. I really appreciate your spending some time with us. Uh, to learn more about Dr. Look's presentation, you can go to the OMA Academy and listen to Early Intervention in Weight Management Treating Pre-Obesity. This was a presentation at the Fall Obesity Summit for the OMA in 2023. Thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for having me. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with a friend or a colleague. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Obesity, a Disease. For more information about obesity medicine podcasts and other valuable resources from the clinical leaders in obesity medicine, please visit www.obesitymedicine.org backslash podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode and want to listen regularly, head over to iTunes where you can subscribe, rate, and leave us a much appreciated review. The views expressed in this episode are those of the host and guest and do not necessarily represent the opinions, beliefs, or policies of the Obesity Medicine Association or its members. Please join us again for our next episode of Obesity, a Disease.